Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum Radio Show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for, bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about why I said I am a bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the second part of that. Our mission here at Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions. And then this is the tricky part, the same way Jesus did. Now, some of you have written in and said, boy, you know, Roy, that's... You know, that might be a little arrogant saying you think you can answer questions the same way that Jesus did. And I want to be clear. I want to spend a few minutes here explaining what I mean by that. I don't mean that we're going to give perfect answers. But I do want to be clear about something. And this is from a talk that I did at our last conference in October 2020. It was a talk I gave called Thinking Biblically. And what I said was, even though we can't think like God thinks, like we don't know everything, we're not perfect like God is, we can do what he does when he thinks. And I'll put a link up on our website to that talk if you didn't attend the conference or you want the, the full picture and context of what I'm talking about. But what I said was that the one thing that God does when he thinks, that all of us can aspire to do, is to never think falsely. That's the trick. Never think falsely. Essentially, Jesus demonstrated the epitome of a biblical worldview. Whenever we say, wait a minute, I'm thinking through something, I see the assumptions and the conclusions, and if they contradict each other, if it's internally contradictory, we say, wait a minute, stop. There's a falsehood here. I need to dig it out and think about it and analyze it and find out where the problem is before I think further. So that was something that Jesus did. It's something that we think we can do here at the Ambassadors Forum. It's something that you can be equipped and trained to do. Another thing that I want to point out is that Jesus asked questions. People often came to him and said, so Jesus, what do you think about this or how does this work? And Jesus didn't always give them an answer right away. In fact, a lot of the time, he stopped and he clarified and he said, well, what do you mean by that? Or he challenged one of their assumptions or their presuppositions. Or he told them a story that kind of showed the internal contradiction of what they were asking him. And so that's another thing that we can do. We can learn to do well as apologists, as Christians, is to ask clarifying questions. One of the ways I've heard this described, and I don't know who to attribute this to, I don't know who the original source was, but the idea was, in apologetics, we need to learn apologudo. Now, for those of you who do martial arts, you know that judo is a form of martial art where you try and preserve your energy in order to eventually be successful in the match. In a lot of martial arts, they focus on the attack, how to be aggressive, how to deliver certain blows that knock your opponent down. That can take a lot of energy. 
So in judo, at least the way I understand it, the focus is to use your opponent's energy against them in order to conserve your own. So what does this look like in apologetics? Well, I don't know if you've ever come across this question in your life, but one that I've heard specifically is something like, since the Bible has been disproven by science, why do Christians still believe in it? Now, rather than going off and spending hours and hours of research and reading books and all this kind of stuff to try and answer that, use the Apollo Judo technique and say, well, wait a minute, before I go off and do all this work, let me clarify your question. Let me push back a little bit and say, what do you mean by science has disproven the Bible? And you'll find more often than not, people will say, well, you know, I, I heard my friend say, or I read something on the internet or whatever. And, and you say, okay, great. That's fine. I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, clarify your point. Give me an example. Show me how science has disproven the Bible. And now what you've done is, rather than take all the burden on yourself, you've now turned it back to the person who's asking the question and say, hey, help me with the research here. Help me gather the right information. Help me think through this clearly so that we can arrive at the truth together. Let me give you an example of what this looked like when I was working in the high-tech industry for Intel. So... I had been part of this very elite group of research and development engineers. We actually had a policy where they only wanted PhDs in the group. So I was part of an interview team a lot, and we would interview people with PhDs. For those of you who haven't got a PhD yourself or you're not too familiar with you know, how that level of academia works, the kind of working definition is you've researched a topic so in-depth, you've spent so much time thinking about this, that you actually advance the cause of human knowledge in that area. You can't just say, I took a test on things that everybody already knows and I passed with 100%. That doesn't give you a PhD. You need to be able to demonstrate to a group of your peers that here's an area in which human knowledge only went so far. And I actually extended that. And then you get with a, a group of professors and you defend the fact that you have actually done a true job of advancing human knowledge. Then they give you a PhD. So these are very, very highly specialized people in a very, very specific area. And so think about this. Part of our interview process was to bring this person in and they would talk for 45 minutes about what they did their PhD thesis on. Now, you can imagine, even with a group of very educated, intelligent people, they're not going to know that particular topic because this is a new topic. By definition, it's something that no one's ever done before. How do you interview someone who knows so much more about a subject than you do? Well, here's the strategy I developed, and it ended up working pretty well. I would just sit and listen to them present. After about 30 minutes paying very close attention to what they were saying, the hypotheses that they were trying to disprove, the conclusions that they came to, and I would find one little thing that they did incorrectly. 
Now, was it because I was such an expert in the area? No. It's because I just listened to them, and I fine-tuned my radar for any kind of internal inconsistency, any kind of break in the logic where they said, I did this, and this was the outcome. I did this, and this is the outcome. And I said, wait a minute. Five minutes ago, you explained it like this, and then you just said this, and those two things contradict each other. And in the course of dozens of these interviews with top PhD candidates, I could always find something in their logic that they had failed on, that they had done incorrectly. It was so interesting. It would stop people in their tracks. Their eyes would go wide open, and they would stop, and they would think about it, and they're like, you're right. That's exactly right. I did make an error. And then I'd say, okay, no problem. I'm not you know, criticizing you. What do you think the correct way to do that would be? And then we'd have a great conversation, and depending on how somebody reacted when I pointed out an error, told me something about whether that person would do a good job in our environment and not. If they were defensive and denied it and said, no, you don't understand, and start fighting me on it, I thought, okay, that's not going to be a great character in the culture of R&D because everybody always makes mistakes, and we just call them out, and we move on, and we work forward together. So anyway, hopefully that story gives you a little bit of an example of what that looks like in real life. Okay, let's move on to some of the questions from our website. The first one is, who made God? Now, this is a great question, and it often comes up in the discussion of origins. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that there are two things that God has created that point everyone to him. The first one is creation, and the second one is our conscience. Every single person in any time period has pointers in what God has created around them and what God has created in them that point them to him. Now today we're not going to talk about our consciences. We'll save that for another time. But let's focus in on creation. Let's look at a couple of Bible verses. The first one is in the Old Testament, Psalm 19. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. They don't speak a word, yet their message has gone throughout the earth. It travels around the world. This speaks to everyone. Whether they can read and write, whether they have the Bible, whether they have a church, whether they've ever heard of Jesus, whether they've ever heard of Jehovah God, the heavens around them tell them about who God is. And more specifically, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. He goes on later to say, So then, people are without excuse. Like, God has clearly revealed himself in what has been made. So, when people look around at the material world, they should be asking the question, so who made this? Who made the universe? Where did it come from? And when you ask that question, you're faced with a difficult answer. You can either say, well, nobody made the universe. It's 
eternal. It's been around forever. There's some scientific problems with that. The first one, and I'm just going to very quickly cover these. This is not going to be an in-depth scientific analysis. But the first one is the law of entropy. When scientists look around, they notice that everything has a gradual decline from order into disorder. So if the universe was eternal, everything would be in complete disorder by now. So it doesn't really fit the facts and the data around us. The second one, and this has only recently come to light, is that people can now take measurements of the universe. And what they've found is that the universe is expanding. So if you just think that back logically, you're like, well, if it's expanding, then it can't have expanded forever. And so that's actually how we have arrived at the Big Bang Theory. Someone just says, well, if it's expanding and we run the clock backwards, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it hits a single dot. And that's where the Big Bang Theory came from. So nobody in the scientific community anymore thinks that the universe is eternal because of those scientific facts. But then you can't really go the other way either and say, well, it began somewhere. Well, it began from what? Well, it, there was nothing, and then from nothing, all of a sudden, everything just came to be. The, the biggest challenge with the Big Bang Theory is not how one single dot of stuff exploded and spread out into everything. It's, well, what happened before that single dot of stuff? And that's where people just don't have an answer. And Christians will ask an unbeliever and they'll say, well, who created the universe? Who created that single dot or whatever your theory of where everything came from? And there's no good answer because everyone intuitively knows that you can't get something out of nothing. There's a Latin phrase for this. It's ex nihilo nihil fit, which means out of nothing, nothing comes. So the unbeliever is in a difficult spot where they say, well, the universe can't be eternal, but it also can't have started somewhere either, so there's not a good answer. So what people will do is they'll turn that around and say, okay, fine, I don't have an answer to who made the universe, but how about this? Well, then, who made God? And there's the rub. Because someone who's generally trying to argue for a materialistic worldview doesn't have an answer from where did the universe come from. But Christians, when they try and explain the universe, they're not coming from a materialistic worldview, they're coming from a biblical worldview. And what the Bible teaches is that God is not part of the material universe. So when Christians say God created ex nihilo, what they mean is God created all of the universe, all of the material universe, when there was nothing before it. Well, does that mean there was nothing? No, there was God. Well, but God isn't included in the material universe. So one simple way to think about this is, if you draw a big circle, and you say everything that exists is inside that circle, okay, that circle is called the universe in a materialistic worldview. So some people mistakenly think that if I draw the circle of everything that exists, that's the universe, then inside that circle I would draw God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God exists outside that circle. God wasn't created. He's not part of the material universe. So while the universe needs a maker, 
God doesn't need a maker. He never claims to be part of this material universe the way that people explain the universe today. Now, I know that was a lot to cover, and I went through really quickly here on the radio. Hopefully that helps. All right, let's try and tackle another question from our website. It reads like this. Would you say LGBTQ is either natural or right? Whew, <laughs> this is a pretty controversial question, especially in our culture today, but I don't want to avoid it. And the reason is because this is a real question. If we don't try and give people a reasonable, logical, biblically sound, and emotionally sensitive way to think about these kinds of things, people are going to find the answers somewhere. Maybe the internet, maybe their friends, maybe they'll land in front of somebody who's trying to infuse a political agenda, and they may not end up getting closer to the truth. Now, I want to pause here for just a second and give a gentle warning to you parents. I'm going to need to be very open about a complicated and sensitive topic. So if you have young children listening along with you, you're probably going to want to preview this part of the program first before you decide if they are ready to listen to it. All right, well, let's get into it. I want to start with some clear truths, so listen in. Number one, God loves people who identify as LGBTQ. Number two, the Bible offers the same plan of salvation to everyone, regardless of your sexual preferences or how you identify yourself. Number three, Jesus died to pay the price for all of our sins. The Bible says once for all and reconciled the world to God. And number four, our apologetics ministry, the Ambassadors Forum, above all else is motivated by love and a desire for people to achieve their potential to the highest degree, a desire for people to reach their highest fulfillment for which they were created. We have their best interest at heart, and we are willing to sacrifice for their well-being, and we're willing to work towards their flourishing, etc., etc., etc. Now, if it seems a little weird to you that I would need to make such statements up front, I apologize. Some of you might be saying, Roy, come on, you're just stating the obvious. Well, I know, but unfortunately, I have heard some people state the exact opposite as their fundamental starting assumptions. That God and the Bible and Jesus and Christians hate people who identify as LGBTQ. Now that's ridiculous, and it's false. And if you start with that assumption, you have laid a false foundation. And whatever you end up building from there, even if it's consistent and reasonable and well-informed and all the rest, it will be wrong. It will be wrong because you built on a false foundation. So as a scientist, as an engineer, I've discovered the importance of not having even one single wrong starting assumption in my analysis. I hope that's a skill that you can recognize and develop and master as well. It will totally change your understanding of the world and make a lot of things that have been confusing in the past finally make sense. So let's get on to our question. When we think about these kinds of social issues today, clarity in our thinking is absolutely critical. And the first step to clear thinking is precise definitions of our words. So let's start with LGBTQ. 
The L stands for lesbian, which is a biological female who is sexually attracted to other biological females. The G is for gay, which is typically referred to a biological male who is sexually attracted to other biological males. The B is for bisexual, a biological female or male who is sexually attracted to both biological males and females. The fourth, T, is transgender. This is a person who is biologically male or female, but feels like they are the other gender. So, for example, a biological male would feel like he is a biological female, or a biological female would feel that she is a biological male. Finally, Q stands for queer. Now, this is an intentionally vague term that really doesn't have a specific concrete meaning. It's more meant to be fluid and change with the times. So as you can see, LGBTQ is not a monolithic block. There's no inherent unity in this grouping. The first three terms, L, G, and B, are different classifications of sexual preferences. The fourth term, T, has nothing whatsoever to do with sexual preferences. But instead, it's a denial of irrefutable biological truth. It's the type of thing that the secular intellectual community would call anti-science. And the fifth term, Q, really is more of a politically provocative label that people use to try and disrupt things. Often it's an attempt to destroy the idea that there could ever be any kind of sexually normative thing in society. In fact, many in the LGB community wish to dissociate themselves from these fourth and fifth terms because they're a different kind of identity expression altogether. So now that we've identified these terms, let's go back to the original question. We need to try and determine if the words natural and right should apply to these classifications. And for the purpose of that analysis, let's consider the male and female anatomies. They have an obvious natural reproductive design, function, and purpose Therefore, you could conclude that independent of any desire, you know, one way or the other, homosexual relations, the first three terms, L, G, and B, wouldn't really fit that definition of natural. In other words, they don't serve the design and function of the inherent purpose in nature, which is to continue the species. The fourth term, T, by definition would be difficult to classify as natural, because it's meant to be a rejection of observable scientific facts and phenomenon like physical traits, DNA, chromosomes, epigenetics, etc., etc. And people often use the fifth term, Q, to be intentionally unnatural. It's meant to be disruptive. So what about that second word, right? Well, for something to be right, it requires that it adhere to some outside standard. In our Western culture, we frequently identify that outside standard as the Bible. Now, if we use that standard as the context for this question, then no, these terms wouldn't be considered right. The Bible clearly describes God's design for all sexual activity and clearly describes his consistent view of truth as necessarily aligning with the objective, observable reality around us. And as I discussed at the beginning of this question, God's desire is always for our best because he designed us and he made us and he loves us. It's important to remember that whenever we try to ask or answer these complicated questions like this, 
it is imperative that we ask clarifying questions up front. You need to make sure that you're using the same definitions of the words of the people that you're talking with. And if you don't start with that common ground, there is no way you will ever have a productive discussion. And there's one last thing I want to add. In the end, it is important to remember that Christians should not view sexual topics as inherently bad or a subject to be avoided. No, God created the genders, male and female, and natural sex between them in marriage as a beautiful design and an amazing system to be admired and celebrated as both natural and right. Well, I hope these answers and the explanation of the logic required to arrive at them has been helpful. I want to encourage you to get in the game. Keep asking questions. Go to the Bible for your answers and bring along some friends and family to walk alongside you in your journey. The Ambassadors Forum is here to help you get started. Go to our website at theambassadorsforum.com for all kinds of helpful resources. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.